for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. It's a good one today. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the word of God for the people of God. Why don't you all stay standing and let's share the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Y'all can be seated. So uh, for the last few weeks, I have been shutting the back doors to the sanctuary about 15 minutes before service uh, so that it's peaceful in here and a handful of people have kind of trickled in and enjoyed the music and prayed and been reading the scripture and uh, so I was I was surprised watching people uh, and that's my office there hidden behind the mirror watching people you know trickle in and come Trina came right to the second row way to go Trina and then I saw I saw the Rodericks come in at the very beginning of service and with the Annettes went straight to the front row and then the Coopers and the Briggs and the Flings did all the same thing. And I said to Jeff, it's like, did you guys coordinate this? He said, no, you said last week, if, you, if we come to the front, you're going to preach better, one percentage point better for every person who's at the front. Ten. It was 10. <laughs> I can't live up to those expectations. So I, it does help. It feels good to be close. Thank you for being, oh, thank you. Thank you for being right here. It helps me, 24%. I'll up it a little bit. It does help so much. Uh, well, such a joy to be together. You know, it's fun. I didn't plan to say this, but what's fun is in the last month or so, people who have been attending our church this summer and not really knowing folks are beginning to make friendships, and that's so relieving. <laughs> it's so, uh, it fills me with so much joy knowing connections are beginning uh, to develop, which is so much fun. Uh, I've been having a lot of conversations with uh, probably one thematic conversation a week with people in the church or people attached to the church, and it seems to be the case that there's a phenomenon that has been accelerating in the last two years. A phenomenon, and I, and I can't quite, I have my own explanations for why this thing might be happening, but I just see that it's happening, and you're probably going to recognize it immediately too. That in the last two years, there have been more and more people articulating something like, you know what, I'm just not sure I believe anymore the things that I used to believe. How many of you would say that you, uh, either you have been in this spot or you have friends who are saying things like this, you know what, I'm just not sure that I believe the things that I used to believe anymore. 
Yeah. I think this phenomenon is accelerating, and some smart person will write a book about why that's happening, but I think we can just uh, suffice it to say like it is happening on a really big scale. And in some ways, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing to go through periods of, of unlearning, especially if you press in and it can lead to higher levels of learning. Um, I don't know what you believe about these kind of things, but when I was in the middle of high school, um, I was at the, the home of a, a friend at school, and they brought in this traveling prophet. Now, I would love to go back and learn anything I could find out about this guy. And some people had an experience that they didn't like, and I had an experience that was profoundly moving for me, where I sat down in a chair, he laid hands on me, he asked the Lord to tell him something, and he said some things about me that I treasure and hold very close to my heart. One of the things that he said to me was, the disturbance in your heart is from me, using it to bring you closer to my truth. And I think that when we experience a disturbance in our hearts or things that we previously believed maybe don't feel quite right, we, we don't necessarily need to interpret it as a sign that we ought to be moving away from the community of faith, but actually God might be pulling us in closer toward truth, toward other people. There may be deeper levels of understanding that he wants to share with you. And so I think an unlearning can be good. I think it's good to purge a kind of cultural, superficial Christianity. Some people in the middle of this, and it hurts my heart, have been ditching the faith. And some people have been becoming more and more anchored as a result of this process. Now, we're having conversations. I feel like I'm having them weekly, or you're telling me about them uh, with conversations you've had with friends who are questioning what they believe, especially tied to social issues. But a question that I rarely hear asked, especially by people who are moving away from Orthodox Christianity is, where can I find the absolute best and most robust Christian thinking on X topic? A question that I rarely hear asked by people who are kind of on their way out is, where can I find the absolute best and most robust Christian thinking on X, Y, Z topic? In my experience, it's often not a robust, mature, balanced Christian idea they're rejecting, but a flimsy caricature of what Christians think. And this is, by the way, what absolutely all of us do toward people with whom we disagree. It happens a lot in politics, but in any ideological conversation, this is just what we do with ideas we don't like. We employ our most nuanced, complex arguments to disassemble a partially accurate, broad-brushed presentation of our opponent's ideology. So we bring our best to tear down their worst, which is often more about winning, more about making ourselves feel good and smart than about uh, really getting to the bottom of an idea. But here's a really big point that I've been trying to get across and to underscore as we've been working our way through the Apostles' Creed in the last a handful of weeks. There's a really important question that's underneath all of the questioning that people are doing. A question that people are not asking. There's a really important underlying subterranean foundational question that we need to entertain if we're to make any progress in the quest for truth. It's a fork in the road kind of question or series of questions. First question, do you believe that we live in a world in which God has revealed truth to which we should conform. Okay, breathe and let that question settle in. 
Do you believe that we live in a world in which God has revealed truth to which we should conform? Or do you believe it's up to us to chart our own course and create our own truth? Now, this is a really important question. It's a question that goes unasked. But when you're arguing or discussing with a friend with whom you think differently, it might be worth coming back to these foundational questions. Well, hold on. Let's pause the conversation about this, and let's talk about the bigger question. Do you believe we live in a world in which God has revealed truth to which we should conform or we would be wise to conform? Or do you believe that we live in a world in which we just, like, make our own truth? Like, you know, there are hundreds of ways to get through the day, so you just find one. Which one of those questions is, is true for you? Which, to, to which one would you say, yes, I believe? If the former is true, if you believe that we live in a world in which God has, uh, out of a desire to be known and for his people to flourish, revealed, here's the course of wisdom, walk in it. If you believe that, then we should do what the author of Proverbs 2 says. We should turn our ear to wisdom and apply our heart to understanding and call out for insight. But if you believe the latter, uh, that that God has not revealed himself or his truth or the path of wisdom, but it's all ultimately up to us, I just want you to appreciate what an unbelievable burden you've just inherited. What an unbelievable burden you've just placed on yourself. It's like a sea captain who throws away his compass and says he no longer believes in cardinal directions. Good luck navigating the waters. And it reminds me of my favorite really depressing songwriter, Connor Oberst, who, processing his own disbelief in God, said, how sad it is to know I'm in control. When we come to gather as a church, it's worth knowing that I have a bias in these questions. And I would presume that you do too. As followers of Jesus, I mean, I mean, all of the things you have to, to believe to get there, we presume that God ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ has willed that he would be known. We presume in studying the Bible or in studying the creed that God has revealed truth, that God wants his people to, to flourish, that God wants us to find the path of wisdom. And if you're not there, as I say from time to time, if, if you, whether you believe the things we believe or vehemently disagree with us, if you're not with us, just know that you've gone in a different direction. You've taken, that's an inflection point, these questions, and you've gone a different direction. So we're not having conversations in the same spheres. To live dependent on God or on truth being outside of us requires humility. It requires teachability, one of my favorite qualities in a human being. It requires wisdom and it requires courage because it can be difficult to believe. It can be difficult to believe. It can be also difficult to follow through on belief. It can be costly. If you were here a couple weeks ago and heard my friend Brother John, John Samara, Uh, You know uh, the cost of following Jesus in different contexts. So I love uh, this passage in 2 Timothy 2 where Paul instructs Timothy, because the quest for truth can be difficult because the world is complex, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed but who correctly handles the word of truth. Investigate, study, learn. I love uh, Rich Mullins, who probably anyone, under, many people under 35 no longer remember, but Rich Mullins was a CCM singer 
who wrote a song about the creed, and he said, I did not make it, it is making me. It's the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. And today we're looking at the next part of the creed. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and suffered under Pontius Pilate. Are the Ranahans here by chance? My friend Bill Ranahan is in the church. He's a biologist, a professor at uh, ORU, and at prayer on Thursday we were talking about this phrase in the creed that I was going to help, you know, work our way through, and he pointed out that, uh, thinking about the incarnation of Jesus, that humans have 46 chromosomes, 23 that we receive from each parent, and he's like, I wonder how it worked for Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and there's some crazy hypotheses out there, uh, but we know there's a, there's a term that, that some scholars use talking about how God created ex nihilo. God created all things out of nothing. God just decided these 23 chromosomes are going to exist. It's, it's a mystery. But in our study last week, I believe in uh, Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, uh, we confirmed that Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity. As the Nicene Creed says, um, he's eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Jesus is the everlasting, eternal uh, Son of uh, the Father. Uh, today we affirm that, that God in Christ condescended to become completely human. So he's completely God, but he was completely human. Uh, Eugene Peterson in uh, John 1.18 of the message says, uh, God be took on flesh, became flesh, and moved into the neighborhood. Now this part of it we might readily agree with. I, I, that part feels good. The Mary part might be just as troubling for some as the Catholic part. Because again, and if you've not been here for weeks, you think, okay, I thought I liked this church, but are they Roman Catholic? The, the Mary part presents questions for some people. So I'll offer you a, a word about Mary. Now, uh, Protestants often overcorrect, in my view, a Catholic fixation on Mary by having no regard for the mother of Jesus and even open contempt for her. And I do want to clarify that her role, her mention in the creed here is mostly to emphasize Jesus' true humanity. If he's going to be truly human, he needs to have a mom. He was born of a virgin. He was truly human. He was born. Uh, but let me tell you this. Like, no matter what you think of Mary, I'll tell you what I think. In the age to come, when we meet the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the apostles... When Mary, the mother of Jesus, walks in the room, I'm going to stand up. And if she lets me, I'm going to kiss her on the cheek. She bore our Lord. Am I going to worship her? No. Am I going to pray to her? No. Am I going to honor her? You bet. There's some Greek terms that early church fathers used to describe Mary. Christotokos, Theotokos. She's the Christ-bearer. She's the God-bearer. Her cousin, uh, cousin Elizabeth says, Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So don't worship her. Honor her. Like, like, not, in like a, not in like an inappropriate way, not equal to the Godhead. But uh, some of you will remember, uh, ooh, didn't expect to get emotional. My grandmother. Do y'all remember, uh, anybody remember Marie Smith, my grandma? See, I liked you people already, remember? My grandmother was a part of this church uh, our first couple of years, year and a half, two years before she went to be with the Lord. 
She was 97. <clears throat> a couple of times we were blessed by hearing my grandma read scripture. And she was a, a pastor's wife. She sang all of her life. Uh, when she died, there was a funeral here and a funeral in Des Moines where she and my grandpa served as pastors. And you just think, this is a matriarch. You honor her. Or others of you will remember, uh, I, I previously served at Asbury, and uh, Bill and Jane Mason were kind of the founding pastors of Asbury, and both of them just went to be with the Lord in recent years. And you think of, of all the people that they visited in the hospital, all the people that they prayed for, all the sermons that were preached, how instrumental this couple was in forming a community. I am the byproduct of two the pastor two generations ago sowing seeds of the gospel. I'm absolutely a product of that. And so when Pastor Bill comes in the room, you stand, you, you honor him. It's okay, to, it's okay to honor but not worship. I think we should think rightly about Mary. She's the mother of Jesus. Now, this, this pair of phrases, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, expresses a mystery that's akin to the Trinity. How can you adequately explain that God is completely one and also three persons? It's a mystery beyond our comprehension, and yet in God's progressive revelation, this is how God has made himself known. How can we make sense of the fact that Jesus is completely God, 100%, and also completely human simultaneously? Even right now at the right hand of the Father, Jesus bears scars in his hands and his feet for what he did for us. The, the divine and the human natures of Jesus wed together in perfect unity are reflected in a, a phrase that smart people have used called hypostatic union. It's, the, he's it's perfectly together. He's not 50-50. He's completely God and he's completely human. Which means that everything that he did as a man in his incarnation, he did as God. Everything that he said bears the weight of divine speech. He is living divine speech in a John 1, 1 kind of sense. Everything that he did as a man, he did as God. And everything he does as God, he does as a man. Which means that for Jesus, in being God, he gets what it's like to be human. In being God... Uh, Jesus gets what it's like to be in our skin, which is for us really, really good news. This is the passage that we've just read. Hey, Kristen, did I put up the teaching text? I don't know. Will you hand me your Bible? Let's hope it's a good version. I hope it's not heretical. <laughs> this is the teaching text we just read in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verses 12 through 16. Oh, we'll just go with Grayson's here. Okay. Take care, brothers. Wait, this, this isn't the right one. What Bible is this? No, uh, verse 12 through 16, 14 through 16. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Here's the good part. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way and yet without sin. Let's then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Everything that he did as man, he did as God, and everything that he now does as God, he did, does as a human being who gets what it's like 
to be us. We do not have a high priest, one who represents us to the Father, who is out of touch with what it means to be human, but someone who is deeply in touch with what it means. In Jesus, we have a God and we have an intercessor in heaven who's pulling for us because he can empathize with us. And that should give us confidence to ask for help. Do you know how relieving it can feel to be understood? Like you're talking to one person and you're like, it's cumbersome to get yourself, to get a point across and someone else walks in the room and you're like, okay, Bob, you get it. Help me here. In Jesus, we have a God who gets what it's like to be human, who can relate to the whole breadth of the human experience. He knows what it's like to be a teenager. He knows what it's like to go swimming. He knows what it's like to be part of a family and to have difficulty in family relationships. If you ever read in the Gospels, we saw it in the Gospel of Luke, if you've been doing your readings, how uh, his, his brothers ridiculed him. That's what, that's what brothers do, by the way. But he had a strained relationship with faith. Jesus understands what it's like. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be faithful in participating as part of God's people and also to have a frustrated relationship with God's people. So to put it really simply, like, Jesus went to church, and Jesus also struggled with the people at church, which is good news. <laughs> Jesus knows what it's like to be single and celibate. Jesus knows what it's like to be homeless. He knows what it's like to enjoy a meal. He gets what it's like to be a person. Uh, next week, and I think actually the next couple of weeks, we're going to sing a, a new song called uh, Son of Suffering. It's a great song. The first verse says, Oh, the perfect Son of God, in all his innocence, here walking in the dirt with you and me. He knows what living it is. He's acquainted with our grief, man of sorrows and son of suffering. He knows what it's like walk down the street to be a person. He can relate the breadth of the human experience. The phrase, you might wonder, why does Pilate get mentioned? For such like, like small of real estate that the creed gets, why mention uh, Pilate here? Well, to mention Pontius Pilate, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, is to put Jesus in real time and space. Pilate was an historical person. Jesus' suffering under Pilate happened. That's why I always bristle a little bit at the idea of like the Bible propounding timeless truths. It's like, yeah, I get what you're trying to say, but it's actually quite timeful truths. God entered into real space and time to make his point, to speak his word in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus suffered under historical person. And it's really fascinating that if you pay attention to all of the creed, and this is why we need to treat each word or phrase in the, in the creed like a hyperlink where we expand on each of them to go deeper and in, into the fuller revelation of truth. Uh, apart from being born, the only word in the creed that addresses the life of Jesus, like between birth and his crucifixion, is the word suffered. The only word given to the life of Jesus in the Apostles' Creed is that he suffered. I think about how meaningful that might be for people who have been disenfranchised and who have suffered throughout human history. 
that uh, over the course of human history, see that in, in the person of Jesus Christ, he more closely identified with the oppressed rather than the oppressor. Think about people who were slaves and longing for freedom. People who saw injustice the Son of God identified with the suffering. His life is summarized by that word, he suffered. The chorus of that song we'll sing next week says, Blood and tears, how can it be? There's a God who weeps. There's a God who bleeds. Oh, praise the one who reached for me. Hallelujah to the son of suffering. I remember Eugene Peterson saying once, um, I don't remember which book, but he had he'd read Karl Barth's massive systematic theology. I mean, volume upon volume upon volume. And, you know, he would be like, receiving the accusation from cool, smart, buff pastor that I quoted last week who said that kind of stuff is just out of touch with reality and unhelpful. But Peterson said that the more he studied theology, the more it helped him to actually be a good pastor. And I don't know if you feel the way that I feel, (laughs) but I feel just in talking about the person of Jesus that something stirs in my heart and even a sense of true north kind of like gets clarified. That there's something about him, there's that song, there's something about that name that like begins to just make sense of the world again. There's something about the beauty of Christ that that grips your heart and reorients you. I think about the, the eternally begotten Son of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, entering into creation so that he can identify with every aspect of the human experience. Well, that just grips my heart. I wonder, when was the last time the beauty of the gospel or the truth of Jesus Christ gripped your heart to the point of tears? Uh, You may be an an intellectual kind of person. You want to get to the bottom of things. You love the Lord with your mind. But when was the last time you loved the Lord with your heart? And I think that our hearts and our affections atrophy easily in our world right now that's constantly bombarded given reasons to be mistrusting toward other people, reasons to be anxious, reasons not to believe. So I wonder, when is the last time the truth of the gospel stirred your heart in a way that produced fresh affection for Jesus? Maybe you stopped believing because you stopped loving. Or maybe you'd say, I still believe the things, but, but your, your life and your message have stopped being believable because you've stopped being loving. I think of all the friends that, you know, I alluded to at the beginning of the service who are are drifting or saying, I no longer believe the things I used to believe. They've allowed themselves to be isolated in the last year. And their faith is waning. Their love is waning because they've, they've taken themselves out of Christian community. They've taken themselves out of the habit or the rhythm of just hearing the good news and, like we'll do in a minute, receive the good news that Christ died for our sins, that Christ died because he loves us. And as we continue to work through the creed, I I really, really want to help us to think well as Christians. There are things that I want to say. There are books that I'm like, if you'll just read these 500 pages, it'll help a lot. I I want us to think really well. But I think that in so many ways, our, our mind is guided by our affections. And, and I want you to have fresh love in your heart stirred for Jesus. So we get ready to receive communion. I want to ask you to entertain the the questions that I posed at the very beginning. 
On what are you building your life? As we exit the building today and you go back and you're navigating ethical questions at work or or social questions or desires within your heart that war against your own conscience, uh, on what are you building your life? Uh, Do you believe, as the the church throughout time has, has understood, that the person of Jesus Christ is the highest and clearest revelation of who God is and what it's like to be human? You're building your life. Jesus said those who who obey my words and put them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. When the storm came and the winds rose, it, it stood because it was built on a sure foundation. Or do you bear the unbelievable burden of just winging it out there? I'd invite all of you to to more fully love the Lord with your heart and with your mind, to ask him uh, to to overtake you, to purify you. Uh, Maybe you have legitimate questions you need God to to reveal himself to you. Or maybe your heart has just turned into stone and you need him to chisel it away. Ask the Lord as we get ready to receive communion, would you show yourself to me in a fresh way? Would you stir up fresh love? Would you help me to understand and love you with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength? And I want you to remember the good news that we shared last week, that Jesus' name means God saves. This is not just a religious version of it all being on your shoulders. God is working for your good. He is pulling for you at the right hand of the Father. Jesus saves. He's one of us. He wants to invite you to walk alongside him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, very simply today, we reflect on the mystery and the reality that you've entered humanity. And that just just as we bear scars from the hurts that we've acquired in life, the unkind words that have been said to us, the words of affirmation that have been withheld from us, the prayers that we felt were unanswered, the, the, the harms from other people, Uh, We thank you, Jesus, that you understand what it's like to bear scars in your bodies and scars in your heart. And I pray, Lord Jesus, today in our weakness and in the the difficulty we have in believing that you'd hold us in the strength of your prayers. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with, with us, but one who's been tempted in every way, tried in every way, gone through every difficulty you can imagine, even to the point of death. And so he gets it when we suffer. He gets it when we're lonely. He gets it when we have joys. Pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd hold us in the strength of your prayers, that you'd stir up fresh love for you, that you'd win over the battlefield of our minds, that you'd give us courage to be people who follow true north, even if everyone says we're going in the wrong direction. You know what it's like to be misunderstood. Help us to get used to it. Jesus, I pray that you pour out your spirit on us. Uh, there, are, there are people here who need physical healing. There are people here who are really, really worried about finding a job or finding a spouse. There are people who are really want to get pregnant and haven't been successful yet. And so, Lord, in addition to all this big, big picture, like ideological questions we're asking, we're also bringing with us just our human frailties and core longings, feeling frustrated in retirement. And so, Jesus, I just pray that you would uh, that we would feel ourselves loved and known by you in the places where we live. 
And as we receive Holy Communion, as we ingest this bread and wine, may it be for us a, a living sign, a living witness to your resurrection. May we feel ourselves held in your prayers. Jesus, we honor you. We love you. Just as you've entered time in the past, pray that you'll enter time now and meet with your people as we receive Holy Communion. In Christ's name. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.